We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. Please turn to 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 13. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 13. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 13. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and infliction hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through the honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are created as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Good morning. Uh, as we prepare to look at the paradox of gospel ministry today, I got to experience that even uh, in standing on the side here. I had uh, one member come by and, and cheer and say, yay, Adam's preaching. I had another member come by and say, oh, if it's you, I'm walking out the door right now. So uh, I got to experience both just in that small little microcosm. So. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who I haven't had the privilege to meet visiting with us, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's a joy for us to have you this morning. Uh, I want to extend that. Welcome to you and hope you've already felt it, which I'm sure you have. Uh, if you would, please stop by in the lobby with us afterwards. We'd love to connect with you, get to know you a little better, and uh, give you a free gift as well as we send you out today. Uh, Emmaus members, it's such a joy to be uh, one of your pastors. I mean, that sincerely, um, the kindness that the Lord has shown me. Uh, through you all is, is nothing short of grace I don't deserve, so thank you for all that you do. Uh, hey, in way of announcements this morning, really, we only have one to address, and that is that uh, get used to being here at nine for some of you, because starting next week, we will officially be at two services, uh, first one starting at nine, second one starting at 1045, so you can be uh, prayerfully considering which one uh, you plan to attend, and uh, we look forward to this next step with you. I uh, just want to thank you in advance. I know uh, you'll hear us say this and you've heard us say this, but um, just thank you, Emmaus, for, uh, um, for working through this and uh, being gracious and humble in serving through this time. And uh, uh, we really are praying that the Lord is going to do mighty things uh, in this. So uh, thank you for your humility to, uh, to labor as we 
as we work through kind of transitioning to two services. Um, with that being said, I want to pray for us and then open up the word together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today in the righteous name of Jesus Christ, Lord, the only mediator between God and man. Lord, we lift high the name of Jesus. We pray that everything we do here today, from the songs we sing to the prayers we pray to the word that's proclaimed, Lord, that Christ would be supremely honored, and Lord, that the name of Jesus would be found on our ears and our, and our lips, and Lord, that we would esteem him more having been here during this time. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us and just guiding us into truth as we hear your word proclaimed. Um, Lord, may, may it root out sin in our hearts, and Lord, may it comfort us where we need comforted, and Lord, may it compel us to righteousness where we need compelled, and Lord, may it give us a greater joy and love for you. Lord, as we have the opportunity to look on the paradox of the Christian life today, I pray that uh, you would help us to embrace, Lord, the discomfort of being a people caught in between two worlds, and Lord, that you would give us endurance and hope as we faithfully labor here on earth as we await your glorious return. Lord, give us this time um, to meet with you, and it's your name I pray, amen. Elect exiles is the term that Peter chooses to label first century Christians who have been scattered throughout the providence of Asia Minor. And even though we find ourselves now 2,000 years past that moment, still we find that this phrase perfectly encapsulates what it is to be a Christian in a fallen world. On the one hand, elect, chosen by God, accepted in the Son with all the rights and privileges of cherished sons and daughters in the king. And on the other hand, exile, a people in a foreign land who find themselves opposed to the values and the powers that currently find themselves in control, awaiting the moment when we're reunited to our true home. It can be said truly that we are a people who are caught in between two worlds as we find ourselves living within this tension People who are longing for a better place, yet find ourselves wanting to be faithful here and now in a broken world. Because of this reality, oftentimes the Christian life is marked by paradox after paradox. These seemingly incompatible realities that could never come together, and yet we find them squared away. And for the world, looking on, oftentimes this is a perplexing thing looking and seeing a Christian and saying, how can this person claim to have joy and contentment in life when they deny themselves some of the basic pleasures that this world has to offer? How can these people claim to have hope and joy when I've seen their life, the tragedies that have marred, the sicknesses that have come, are even worse than those of, of the world, worse than people who would not claim Christ, and yet here we see you claim to have this hope. Is Christianity this weird crutch that you use to kind of naively deny the pain that surrounds us in the world? Are these people delusional? Friends, today I say emphatically no. As elect exiles and ambassadors for Christ, I remind you that we are agents of reality. As we look upon this sin-sick world while other worldviews have the tendency to try to explain away the evil that they see or minimize it, we look at the carnage of a sin-suffering world straight in the face with joy and soberness and prescribe the only antidote that can actually heal it. 
This is the weight and glory of Christian ministry. We get to the privilege and the burden of walking into the hospital bed and seeing a man on his deathbed and saying, though you die, you will live because you are in Christ. We get the joy and the burden of standing next to the family after the cancer diagnosis that comes and says, though your heart and flesh may fail, God is your portion forever. And a day is coming when Christ will wipe away every tear from our eye and the curse of sin will be lifted from this land to never reign again. Friends, this is the weight and the glory of Christian ministry. However, I caution you, don't expect this to afford you the applause of the world. In fact, to the carnal man and woman, oftentimes this ministry reeks of death, and it sounds of pure folly. The Christian, the gospel has the backbone to withstand the sharpest criticism of the sharpest critic, while at the same time softening the hearts of the most vile sinner. And so that's why I invite you today, as Paul will be doing too, to embrace the paradox of the Christian life. Embrace the fact that while you stand in between two realities right now, at the intersection of reality and hope, as God's ambassadors for Christ, you get the joy of speaking truth, the truth that the world really needs. So I invite you to consider this uh, as we start in the text today. Uh, We're going to be looking at three things. First, we'll see Paul's appeal to believe the gospel. Uh, We'll see him commend and uh, provide more further defense for his ministry. And finally, he's going to appeal for the Corinthians to restore their affections to him. So so let's look at that as we start in verses 1 and 2. It says this, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So we notice this. Paul's starting this verse. He's referring back to last week's passage. He's saying, working together with him. And last week, we had the joyful opportunity under Pastor Sam's preaching to gaze upon one of the most glorious texts in all of Scripture. Likely there has never been a sentence uttered that has more density and yet simplicity and beauty as it perfectly unpacks the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And we see Paul as he's appealing to the Corinthians in this passage. He reveals to them that he is persuaded by this fear of the Lord. And he doesn't care if he comes across as being kind of this weird guy that the world doesn't get. His main concern as a Christ ambassador is that he would preach Christ to them in their midst and that they would be reconciled to God through them. And it's striking to us as we read this passage, if I can be honest with you, I envision Paul making this statement almost as his final stand. Paul in Rome standing in the middle of the Colosseum with lions surrounding him, people ready to plunge a spear into his body, all of these pagan standing around him, and he's about to utter this beautiful, passion-laced appeal to trust in Christ. And yet, this isn't the context of this, is it? This is to the Corinthian church that he's appealing to. So a couple of things that we can take from this. One is that as Christians, we never move past the gospel. There is no graduating from the gospel and getting to kind of the more meaty, better spiritual things that are there for us. The gospel is all we need. It's the same gospel that we find ourselves, just as C.S. Lewis says, going further up and further into. 
We can never mine the glorious riches that are there to their fullest. We could spend eternity thinking upon them, and yet we would still have much to go. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so we see this, and yet also we see that there's real danger here in the midst of the Corinthian body. As we began this book, we saw that there's so much tension currently between Paul and the Corinthian church. And as we begin to listen to Paul defending himself, he goes into these travel plans he had, and he's trying to explain to them why he changed and explain to them that he's not wishy-washy and these other things. And so we can almost be tempted to think that Paul is simply trying to defend his ego. Hey, look, you think I'm inconsistent, but you know what? There's a reason I wasn't here at that time. We can almost view this as, well, you know, Paul, we actually like you a lot. We love everything you stand for. We're just looking for a younger minister. That's why we want to move on from you. You're not relevant with the kids today. It goes way beyond that, though, right? Paul's revealing this here, his genuine fear that these Corinthians are walking away from the gospel of truth. Not only are they rejecting Paul and his ministry, but they're rejecting the very message that saves. And so Paul continues this passion field appeal for those who had said, Paul, you're disingenuous. We know you don't really care about us. Here we have this grown man who's literally begging them to turn and return to Christ. Don't forsake the grace that is yours today. We notice he appeals to Isaiah 49 in this passage. The Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah is pointing to this moment when this promised Holy One of Israel will come and restore the fortunes of God's people when he will make all things right, when the nations will come and bow before him. And Paul appeals to this moment in verse 2, and he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and a day of salvation I have helped you. And Paul sees these words and he says, Open your eyes, Corinthians. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. He's saying, Look, open your eyes, Corinthians. See the grace that's in your midst. There is no other gospel that saves. If you move past this, you've missed the whole thing. If you move past Christ and go to another message, you are not right with God. This is the one means by which we're restored to God. So have faith in Christ today. Paul's appealing to them so that they might return. Much questions had been raised against Paul and his ministry. And Paul has spent a significant amount of time, in fact, for the last month and a half now, we've been looking at this continuous defense of his ministry that Paul's been in. And we see Paul is serious in this. This has been the foundation of his entire life and ministry, that this gospel message would go forth to the nations, that people would be reconciled to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul has supreme confidence that he's done this well. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Let's notice this together as we read. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. We see Paul is not simply saying, I'm a perfect person. I've done everything perfect my entire life. So if you're not with me, you're wrong. But Paul's saying that my ministry and my efforts among you have been more than commendable. He said, in fact, I can hold my head high that I have served Christ faithfully in your midst. Because why? Verse 3 says it. Put no obstacle in anyone's way from coming to Christ. Friends, this is the chief mark of faithful Christian ministry. Removing the obstacles that lie in the path. Working with the Spirit and removing this veil, as we saw in Corinthians 3 and 4, that blinds people from seeing the glorious face of Jesus Christ. And Paul has done this admirably. 
comprehensively in his entire life, he has displayed before them one who is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And rather than leave this in just a generic kind of general way, Paul goes into specifics and in how he has done this. And we're going to see this in three ways Paul has been faithful in declaring the gospel in their midst. We see first in the suffering that he's endured, secondly in his gentleness and truthfulness, and then third in his paradoxical life. So let's look at these together. First off, starting with Paul's endurance and suffering. He says this, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. That's a heck of a resume right there. So Paul comes with them, and he says, My ministry has not been marked by stadiums that have been sold out, by adoring fans who have flocked to hear me speak, by much financial gain as I've gotten to sell my face on t-shirts and things of this matter. Now, Paul's ministry has come as a high price tag to himself. Much less looking like worldly fame, Paul's ministry has looked like imprisonments and beatings. In fact, it appears as we look through Scripture, the more faithful Paul is to proclaiming the gospel, it seems like the more suffering comes his way. Acts chapter 19 comes to mind as we consider the city of Ephesus, this place which was a stronghold for a god known as Artemis. The temple of Artemis was there, and there was much financial gain surrounding this cult ministry and this cult practice. Silversmiths would sell idols and things of this nature. There was much money being made off of it. And Paul goes to Ephesus, and he begins to preach the gospel faithfully. And can you imagine? The Spirit moves in power as the gospel is preached forward. Lives are turned, and people are coming to Christ. And all of a sudden, the people who are selling the idols start to say, why are our sales quotas down for this quarter? And they begin to trace it back, and they're literally seeing that these changed lives by the gospel are literally cutting into their bottom dollar. Can you imagine, church? If the city of Amsterdam began to realize that uh, because of the proclaiming of the gospel that the red light district all of a sudden just closed, no longer made money for them. This is what's happening in Ephesus. So the Chamber of Commerce shows up at Paul's door and they say, we are going to kill you. (laughs) And by by the Spirit's power, uh, Paul is spared in that moment. But not without much threat and danger to his life. Consider also Philippi, where Paul is with Silas proclaiming Christ in the streets. And this girl is following them around, this girl who's been possessed by a demon. She's a slave to these men who are using her because this demon has allowed her to predict the future. And so people are coming to these men and they're asking what the future is in store for them. And this woman, as she predicts it, they're making much financial gain off her. Well, this woman begins to follow Paul and Silas around as they're preaching the gospel, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, Jesus Christ continues to do this for two days straight. And so finally, Paul gets annoyed and says, demon, go out of her. And he casts the demon out. You can imagine what that looked like as he went back to his home church and described that story. But I just got annoyed. That's why I cast the demon out. (laughs) But he does. And these men get very angry. He's cut off their financial gain from this woman's plight, from this sinful stronghold that's been in her life. Paul removes it. 
and now all of a sudden the world hates him. He's thrown into prison. And so Paul reminds them, in the face of much suffering, I have endured faithfully in ministry to Jesus Christ. This isn't the kind of suffering, although not to minimize it whatsoever, that is common to us all. This is the kind of suffering that comes and could easily be stopped if he just did one thing. Shut up and stop preaching the gospel. If Paul would have done these things, the Ephesians never would have been mad at him. If Paul would have done this, he would have never been thrown in jail in in Philippi. And yet, Paul is compelled as an ambassador of Christ to continue to preach reconciliation through the Son alone. And because of that, he finds himself suffering greatly. And Paul says, I've endured faithfully in this. This brings to mind 1 Peter 6, or 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, where we see this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see suffering has a way of doing this. It has a way of testing genuineness, of proving faithfulness. And Paul said, I have been through the fire twice over, and yet here I remain faithful to Jesus Christ. This is my commendation for my ministry. We see also, even remembering back to 2 Corinthians 2, that Paul says, I'm actually testifying to our suffering Savior himself in my suffering. The very gospel is going forth. As I suffer on behalf of Christ, I point to our suffering Savior who died in our place. In this I commend myself. Notice also Paul says that his life has been a commendation of himself and the gentleness that he showed among them and the truth of the doctrine he proclaimed. Let's look at verses 6 through 7 to see this. He says, By purity and knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So Paul, in this moment, is compelling the Corinthians to look at his life. And he says, Notice the fruit of my life as I was among you. It was consistent with that of the Holy Spirit working through me. I did not come to you as one who was seeking selfish gain from you that I might use you as pawns, but I came to you in kindness, gentleness, genuine love. In fact, oftentimes you've hurt me, and yet still here I am because of my deep care for you. And friends, might I just say that many a ministry has become a spectacle when qualities such as these are thrown to the wayside. When a ministry is built around filling a building no matter what cost it takes, as opposed to genuinely loving loving and shepherding the sheep, oftentimes we've seen many people hurt under the guise of Christianity. Notice also Paul doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't stop with simply his kindness and gentleness towards them, but he said also that my words were truthful to you. I didn't shy away from (coughs) preaching the gospel in power. Consider again who he's speaking to in this moment. The city of Corinth, in many ways, would be like if we took Las Vegas and Babylon and they had a weird baby. The the city of Corinth would probably be what popped out. All kinds of wickedness prospering in this area. And yet what we see is Paul comes to them and he preaches the gospel. And Christ the Spirit moves in power, and He takes all these Corinthians. If we remember back to 1 Corinthians, notice this list of qualities that they possessed before Christ came. All these men and women who were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, 
drunkards, revilers, swindlers. This was their resume. This was the Corinthian church, and yet Christ moves in power as Paul proclaims the gospel, and righteousness comes in. Paul said, this is my commendation. In your midst, I was faithful in both my conduct and my words, and Christ moved in power in your midst. And friends, I want us to stop for a second and think, if we plan on evaluating a ministry, let this be the place that we start. Let's strip past the veneer of all the worldly trappings that we can attach to what gospel ministry looks like, and let's look at these two things, gentle life and right doctrine. And Emmaus, it's my prayer for you. Let this be what characterizes us. Too many times we pit these things up against each other as almost competing interests, like they could never exist together. And yet here we find a paradox yet again where we see them happen. Too often we find gentleness as this prized thing, which it is, but it lacks the truth. And in this moment, this gentleness becomes just a form of self-idolatry where everyone thinks we're so nice and they like us and we just wave at them as they're walking towards their destruction. Friends, this is not Christian love. (coughs) On the flip side of this, too often we've seen those who are dedicated to speaking the truth no matter what the cost, and yet it's never even dripped of an ounce of gentleness. Combative. And it's bullying. May we be a people who are marked by both of these things. Adherence and love for the truth, while at the same time a gentleness and love for people. Jonathan Edwards, a famed American theologian and pastor, was a part of one of the greatest spiritual movements in the nation of America, known as the Great Awakening. And uh, as all of these people began to express faith in Christ, there were many people who were very skeptical. It's almost kind of ironic to say this, right, even as we consider the last few weeks where some noted famous people have professed faith in Christ and and the reactions have been split, right? Many people jumping to, to defend this conversion, other people coming with intense skepticism. And so times really haven't changed, have they? And yet we see Jonathan Edwards is confronted by the same question. How do we know that this is a movement of God? And Edwards offers up these five things that I think are helpful for us. I want to share them with you. When asked about the marks of true revival, here's Edwards' litmus test. Number one, an elevated level of people's esteem for Jesus Christ. Friends, for a movement to be from God and of God, it must be about the glory of Jesus Christ. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if these are not central to a movement, it could be a movement with many beneficial things to it, but this is not a movement of God and salvation. The mark of true revival starts and ends with Jesus Christ. Number two, he said the Spirit operates against the interest of Satan's kingdom. Another way to say that, there is a growing hatred of sin and love for righteousness. There's a growing resistance against our carnal and fleshly desires and a growing delight in things that are pleasing to God. Friends, holiness marks true revival. Number three, a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures. A love for the Word of God follows true revival. Number four, the words used in addressing the opposite spirits. I'm not going to lie, I had to look this one up a little bit more. (laughs) 
So what Edwards means by this is he's saying, are we confronting error? Is there a willingness to confront the errors of the world, the lies of Satan? And are they being confronted with biblical truths? This is a mark of true revival. And lastly, to tie all these things together, he says, the Spirit produces a love for God and for man. Friends, this is what genuine revival looks like. Friends, this is what a faithful ministry looks like. We strip away all the other trappings. This is what we see. Do the people love Jesus? Is the cross central to their hope? Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the place where we're putting our hope? And in that, is it producing in us a hatred for sin and a desire for holiness? Do we love the Holy Scriptures more? Are we in gentleness and in love calling out the lies of the enemy as we see them in our midst? Or are we passively standing by as people walk past and say, you know what, that's probably your truth and uh, you can take it. Uh, Who am I to judge you? Or are we confronting these lies on behalf of others and, and begging them to be reconciled to Christ? And then finally, is this being done in a growing, increasing love of God and love for people? Is there a genuine love in this for others? Emmaus, this has been my prayer for you this week, that you would find yourself growing in these areas. And and I I commend you as well. I see you doing these things as well. Finally, we notice Paul turns to the paradox that defines his ministry. Let's look at that in verses 8 through 10. He says this, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet kill, not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, and yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. So we notice here, Paul addresses these paradoxes um, that have come throughout the course of his ministry. In fact, many of these probably go back to some of the charges that some of these uh, self-appointed apostles who have entered the Corinthian church have leveled against him. And we see, noticing in the first two things, he kind of confronts these two lies, these three lies that have been circulating about him. That he's dishonorable, slandering of his name, that he's this fake apostle. And Paul, in this moment, is reminding us that it's true within the Christian ministry that you really can't make everybody happy. You really can't make everybody happy. And the sooner we embrace that reality, church, the more joyful we'll find ourselves to be. We live in a world that has propensity to call things that are evil good and call things that are good evil. The very acts that you do that would be considered honorable before God may be considered dishonorable before men. Things that would get you praise in heaven for your faithfulness to Christ may result in the slandering of your name here on earth. Things that others would consider to be invalidating of you would actually be marks of true discipleship. And so I invite you to embrace the paradox, church. Live with that tension that comes with knowing that though you might be hated by the world, you're being faithful to your Savior in the midst of that world. We see this is no small thing for Paul. Paul leans in on the paradox of his ministry. He says, he even himself says, I'm daily dying. I'm being led to my death as Christ servant, and yet here I live. 
Paul, this guy who gets beat up and almost killed everywhere he goes, this is not an invalidation of his ministry. It's actually a mark of his faithfulness. Paul, who's this unknown nobody to the world, is known by many through his faithfulness to Christ. As we see these paradoxes stack up, perhaps none of them capture the Christian experience better than verse 10. And this is the charge I want to to leave you with before we go to our application. John Piper, one of my personal uh, heroes of the faith, and a man I greatly admire. Um, After decades of faithful ministry to Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, stepped into the pulpit to preach his final sermon to a people who he had labored for and loved so well for decades of ministry. And this was actually the passage he chose to preach. And mainly because of this text. And so the weight of that struck me, even in hearing Pastor Piper speak on this. And yet, let's read that again together. Verse 10, we see that Paul describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And in many ways, this encapsulates the Christian experience better than any other phrase we see in this list. The Christian being caught in between these two worlds We are not immune to the pain that comes with living in a sin-sick world. Because we have placed our faith in Christ, that doesn't mean that cancer can't sneak into our midst. It doesn't mean that there's a wall up that keeps death out. It doesn't mean that financial troubles won't come. It doesn't mean that struggles in relationships and marriages won't seep into our midst. But what it means is, unlike the world, we have tangible hope. Being sorrowful and yet always rejoicing allows us and affords us the opportunity. This is how we are able to comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received in Christ. This is how we are able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is how we are able to look into the face of brokenness and pain and suffering and say that this suffering is real. We're not masking it at all. It's real. And it's terrible. And it's hard. And yet when we look at this suffering, we can honestly say with confidence that it is minuscule in light in comparison of the glory that awaits us. Friends, this is the secret sauce of the Christian ministry. We are not detached from the world and its strife and its struggles. We bear it intimately in our bodies. We feel the pain of living in a sin-cursed world. And yet we stand in the gap for those who are suffering and perishing. And we say, trust in Christ today. Believe on Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. Friends, embrace the reality of the paradox that comes with being an elect exile. Because it is here that we implore those who are being beaten and abused by the sin-sick world that there is hope in Jesus alone. He has overcome the world, friends. Embrace this paradox, church. Finally, we see Paul's appeal to the Corinthians in verses 11 through 13. He says this, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are wide open. You are not restricted by us but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. So in this, Paul, I don't think the spirit here, he's not calling them little kids. He's like, you're acting like kids, so I'm going to treat you like one. This is Paul speaking with fatherly affection. 
said in this gospel that I have labored for, the Holy Spirit has raised up in the midst of great sin and struggle and strife and turmoil this beautiful church, marred and ugly by sin and yet redeemed by Christ nonetheless, this beautiful people of God in the city of Corinth. And he says, I appeal to you today. My love for you still stands. Just as a spiritual father, I don't want to let you go. So return to the grace of Christ. He said, the problem is not that I have restricted my affections for you, but you've restricted your affections towards us. And that seems to be the way it works with sin, doesn't it? It closes us off to other people. It maximizes their sin and minimizes ours. We see Paul's about to appeal to the Corinthians. Some very strong imperatives next week. Paul's appealing to them and reminding them that this is coming from one who loves them deeply. So in light of these things, church, I invite you to consider three pastoral charges as we conclude our time. Uh, First two to the believers. uh, The last one will be to the non-believer. First to the believers. Charge you to be a people marked by gentleness, holiness, genuine love, and kindness, while at the same time being marked by truth. (coughs) Emmaus, we could spend much of our lives hiding from most controversy if we embrace this doctrine of gentleness. If I can be very transparent and honest with you, this is my propensity. (coughs) I love when people like me. I love it when people say, man, that Sanders, he's a nice guy. I really do. But friends, there's no such thing as kindness when we avoid conflict and we avoid important conversations and we avoid the weighty things of life and we allow people to walk into hell and to their destruction. So I beg you, Emmaus, be a people who's marked not only by a gentleness but an adherence to speak the truth, even when it doesn't make you popular even when it makes things awkward at the Thanksgiving table, even when you find yourself being outcast by those who you cherish and love deeply. Know that you're loving them well when you're gently and genuinely calling for them to repent and turn to Christ. And if I can just add this as an aside, in a Twitter-filled world, I feel like we need this reminder all the more. As platforms continue to build up with sarcasm and cynicism and gotcha, straw man arguments pop up left and right. Be a people who are marked by a deep love for the truth while at the same time being incredibly loving and gentle to those who don't believe it. Second, I invite you to embrace the paradox of the Christian life. Embrace the messy middle as a people who stand in the gap between hope and reality. People will look strange at you. People will be confused at your life. But in the moments where hurt and pain come in and they see the tangible hope you have, friends, this is the secret sauce of the ministry. This is your ability to proclaim the gospel into the lives of broken and hurting people because you have a hope that is not found on earth. The hope that people actually need. So friends, live in the messiness of that paradox. Embrace the messiness of that paradox. And be faithful as you find yourself there. And then my last charge, both to the unbeliever and believer alike, is to embrace today as the day of salvation. 
Paul's words strike us as he begins this passage, this passionate appeal, this man begging for these people. And friend, today if you're here and you would admit that you don't have faith in Christ. In fact, this whole Christian thing is a little bit like I described. It is a paradox. You're slightly intrigued, slightly confused, curious. Let me just invite you today to put your faith in Christ Jesus. The pain that you feel in this world is real. And I can promise you, you can turn over every rock and dig every hole to try to find happiness and contentment and joy. And what you're going to find at the end of your life is you have been left empty. So I appeal to you today to reach out in faith to Christ Jesus. He is good. This world is a temporary dwelling place. And there is a kingdom that is truer than this one that is to come. This kingdom is those who have been reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ. And so I beg you today, put your faith in him. Cry out to Jesus, and he's faithful and true. He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us and sending of the Son, Lord. Lord, I pray today that you would just encourage the saints in this room to live in the paradox that is being caught between two worlds, this world that's perishing and this world that is to come. Lord, I pray that their lives would be marked by just their utter otherliness. Lord, as people who understand and feel the pain of sin and brokenness, and yet also people who have an unshakable hope, an indomitable hope that circumstances cannot deride or take away. Lord, I pray that this would mark us as a body and as a people, and that we would live in the midst of that. And Lord, that the world would see it, and Lord, be drawn to you through it. Lord, I pray that you would mark us with a kindness and a love for your truth, Lord, that Lord, sets us apart as well. And Lord, I pray that you would give this people just a boldness to be ministers of reconciliation, Lord. I thank you for these ambassadors, Lord, that you've placed embassies all over this city in homes and in workplaces where your ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation are are working, Lord. And I pray that uh, you would help us to feel the weight of that as we go out this week as we proclaim the gospel, Lord. It's your name I pray, amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.